Santa Barbara's 14th Annual Writers' Conference presents tape number four. Janet Roach is speaking on writing Oscar nominee. One. And this is how he began before he got mad. Thou eunuch. <laughs> thou eunuch of language, thou butcher, embrewing thy hands in the bowels of orthography, thou arch heretic in pronunciation, thou pitch pipe of affected emphasis, thou carpenter, mortizing the awkward joints of jarring senses, thou squeaking dissonance of cadence, thou pimp of gender, thou scape gallows from the land of syntax, thou scavenger of mood and tense, thou murderous accoucheur of infant learnings, thou ignis fatuous, misleading the steps of benighted ignorance, thou pickle herring in the puppet show of nonsense, and then he gets mad. <laughs> so you're getting off lucky. How many people read, like me, peanuts? Hey, Charles Schultz is right here in this room. Where is he? Will you stand up? Charles Sparky Schultz. <laughs> He's going to talk to us soon. I'm so glad that uh, we have a real screenwriter. The funny thing is we've um, had so many uh, distinguished writers, and we haven't had many distinguished screenwriters. They've done other things, and on the side they did a, a screenplay, maybe, but not even many of those. Tonight we're going to have uh, Norman Corwin, who has done screenplays, among other things. Uh, Lust for Life, for example. Uh, but he's not principally a screenwriter. We're going to have a genuine screenwriter now, Janet Roach, whose Pritzi's Honor was nominated for seven Oscars, won uh, all kinds of awards that she's going to tell us about. And I'm not going to give you any background because I'm hoping that Janet will fill me on, on how she got to get the credit as uh, the lone screenwriter, along with the creator, Richard Condon, of uh, Pritzi's Honor, Janet Roach. Um, this is all an accident. My expertise as a screenwriter is nil. There are lots of people who have theories about them. Uh, my experience is entirely, entirely accidental, so I can't get up here and philosophize about the whole thing. There are indeed people who think that screenwriting is not writing at all. However, uh, the fact that I am here is also an accident, uh, an accident of Barney Conrad. About a year ago, I signed up to do a series of short essays for television about various nutcases in American history. Wackos, people who had done odd things, odd ways for odd reasons, and had them come out interestingly. And among those was Sidney Franklin, the Jewish bullfighter from Brooklyn. The gay Jewish bullfighter from Brooklyn. <laughs> and Barney Conrad, is one of the few people in this world who is an expert about Sidney Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. So 
I came to Carpinteria to interview Barney about what a jackass this man was, in addition to being a gay Jewish bullfighter from Brooklyn. And we had a wonderful time, and Barney's house is filled with mementos of bullfighting. And uh, off I went to New York and cut this piece and showed it to my elders and betters, who were appalled by it. <laughs> they didn't see that it was funny. And so it never went on the air, and I lost that job and had to do something else for a living. So I am a screenwriter. <laughs> um, it, it, it was truly an accident. Um, Pritzi's honor was an accident. Um, I have been a great fan of Richard Condon for many years. I think that Death of a Politician is the best, funniest Nixon-hating I've ever run into. I can't be funny about things that I detest. I can only be funny about things that I care about or love or trust or something. Um, Richard Nixon does not register in those categories. So that when I read Death of a Politician, I became a true Richard Condon fan. And for a long time, I worked at CBS News, part of the time as a producer for 60 Minutes. And I went to Ireland to do a piece about the artists and writers law, wherein artists and writers, most of them not Irish, because the Irish don't like their own, um, can live tax-free in Ireland as long as they art or write. So Condon was living then in a wonderful Georgian house south of Kilkenny town. Of, um, the house was called Rossanara. And he'd done a splendid job of renovating it. And he entertained us with the most wonderful stories over lunch. And it was a marvelous interview. And it made the piece and made my short career a little longer at 60 Minutes. Although it was a short career, another job that left me before I left it. Um, in any case, I became a true fan of Richard Condon's. He's a funny, mannerly, sharp, witty, erudite, literate, marvelous man. And as a result uh, of my admiration, I read all his books and happened one time when I was going down to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, where John Houston used to live, uh, to bring Pritzi's Honor with me. I didn't think of it as a movie. I didn't think of it as anything except something that John Houston would like to read. And I had no professional relationship with John Houston at all. John Houston paints between pictures. And over the years that I'd known him, I had sat for a series of drawings for him. And I happened, I didn't, I, I didn't know that he'd bought the rights to Pritzi's honor. I didn't know that a picture was in the works. And I got on the boat to his house, which is about 40 minutes by boat south of Puerto Vallarta, you go along a little mountainy road to a dock, and you get on a boat, and you go about 40 minutes from there. It's accessible only by boat, and <coughs> inside and outside are the same place. You get out of the boat, and you walk up a little walkway, and Houston's studio is in here, and you walk up a little farther, and there's a common. You walk up a little farther, and there's a guest house. Sheets of screening, no walls, um, the jungle behind you and the Pacific Ocean out front, and 
there this man lives and writes and paints and thinks and whatever. And uh, I was going to sit for a portrait. That's all I knew. It happened to be the day that Richard Condon's first draft arrived. And Condon has a policy of writing only a first draft of a screenplay. He has this conviction that if he goes through with a second draft, somebody will ask him to turn the main character into a gay elevator boy. <laughs> <laughs> so he drops out at draft one, which is usually close to his own novel. And Houston knew that. I did not. Houston asked me to read the screenplay overnight, asked me what I thought of it, and when I finished telling him, he said, how'd you like to try your hand at rewriting that, honey? <laughs> <laughs> so I spent a couple of months in the jungle uh, with a typewriter. An odd schizophrenic experience to be watching um, flying fish out in front and having these mafiosi inhabit my fingers and my typewriter. <laughs> it's very strange to look up from a scene in, that's set in Brooklyn and see uh, the Pacific and the jungle. It's a very schizophrenic experience. I suspect it contributed to the looseness of mind required. In any case, it, it, uh, it was all an accident. And... Uh, Somehow it happened. I mean, I, I can't explain any of that. We went to Los Angeles when I had finished what was what became my first draft. And some studios were interested in the project, one of them seriously interested, ABC Motion Pictures. And Houston found out that he had cataracts. So he, he went to the hospital, the Jill Stein Clinic, and had his cataracts removed. And he came out of the hospital with these things that looked like a cross between kitchen colanders and castanets on his eyes. Right? And he's a very tall man, and he's kind of bony in his old age. So he looked like a praying mantis. And it's not good, even in Hollywood, to have a 78-year-old blind director. <laughs> so the producer, John Foreman, and I went about the business of seeing to it that the money people never knew about John Houston's cataract operations. We did that by be appearing together everywhere around town, looking A, intent, and B, busy, and C, confident. I mean, that was my job, because the script was written. And Houston goes into a picture with a script locked, so there was nothing to be done except look confident and busy. And we'd go one morning to the Beverly Hills Hotel, and then we'd go to the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, and then we'd go to someplace on Rodeo Drive, and then we'd go to the Mirabelle, and nobody in Hollywood eats. Nobody eats. I mean, at the Beverly Hills Hotel, you get 14 raspberries for $8. <laughs> and God forbid you should put spoon into your mouth, somebody might be taking your picture. And these heroes of my childhood would walk in corseted men, corseted from collarbone to kneecap, wearing clingy sweaters. I mean, it was a very jarring experience, as I, so I took my glasses off. <laughs> Which meant that in addition to be, having nothing to do, I couldn't see. 
and I couldn't eat because that would be out of keeping with when in Rome, do as the Romans do. So I would drink lots of coffee. And by 9 o'clock in the morning, I'd be <laughs> like this. And I'd have nothing to do. Nothing, 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 except wait for the money people not to find out about John Houston's cataract. It, uh, somehow it all happened, and it was a wonderful experience, and I haven't yet seen the movie. Um, but my expertise <laughs> as a screenwriter is nil. I mean, I did something, and it worked out. So I don't have any of the horror stories that other people have. I do have a horror story and a theory about screenwriting, which is never get your hair done just because there's nothing else to do. <laughs> because that's what I did. Thus do we learn. I, we were at the Beverly Hills Hotel one morning. I decided I needed a haircut. Um, so I entrusted myself to someone who knew not my hair and I knew not at all. And he convinced me that I, this is the way my hair grows, needed a permanent. <clears throat> and when he took the little rods out of my hair, he knew that he had made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Only I hadn't caught on yet. So he blow dried my hair into something that looked like Betty Ford before the clinic. I mean, it was the perfect wave. It went, <laughs> and then whoo, under here. And I went home to my hotel room and cried and stuck my head in a bucket for hours and waited for the call the next morning from John Foreman because we had this very important breakfast date to look busy, busy and confident. Foreman is one of the most sartorially splendid men I know. He is also original and witty and cares about things. And I knew he cared about me. And when he called, I knew that he wouldn't be seen with me. <laughs> So in the morning when he called to say he'd pick me up and we were going to, I've forgotten where we were going, um, I said, I can't go out ever again. <laughs> he, uh, he allowed us how he'd bring a scarf. And he is, I mean, he does care about things and he's always tucked out absolutely up to the minute. He's also bald, sort of. So this is a problem that he would take seriously. Well, he brought a hat and dark glasses and a scarf. He put the top on his Mercedes. And he appeared at the door of my hotel, and I slunk into the car, you know, sort of like this. And he went like this and said, you've got a problem. <laughs> I looked like Judy Chicago had married Albert Durer, <laughs> truly, and they had one very ugly child. We did not have breakfast that morning. He drove me to a hotbed hotel in the valley where neither of us would be known. He checked in and he called a lawn care person who came with hedge clippers. <laughs> and I looked like a fat Gene Seberg after that for several weeks. So that's my advice about screenwriting is don't get your hair done just because there's nothing else to do. <laughs>
now. Um, the accidents before that took me through the ranks of news, mostly at CBS, some at NBC. I decide I'm an odd person, I guess, eccentric at best, because I decided when I was in fifth grade what I was going to do. I decided that the New Yorker magazine would never have me so that I had to scale down my expectations and I scaled down to wanting to make documentaries for CBS News. <laughs> that was fallback. <laughs> and I decided that in order to do that I had to go to a such and such university and such and such graduate school and I announced those things in the fifth grade in Mrs. Champion's classroom by writing a poem about the AP and Reuters. <laughs> and I never flinched. I never looked any direction. I was a total monomaniac for the next 20 odd years. And I, indeed, I ended up making documentaries for CBS News. And I was only 32. So that I had to think of something else. I mean, I'd done it. I mean, I had no interest in becoming a manager of news. Um, so I left and I did some work for PBS. I did two series with Bill Moyers, one called Creativity and one called A Walk Through the 20th Century. And had a wonderful time doing those because public television is so disorganized that they don't notice the product. It's, it's wonderful. It's, I mean, I did a thing called That's No Tomato, That's a Work of Art, that has, I mean, it's all about technology as a sort of creativity that doesn't necessarily come out right, like screenplays. And it has shots of a tomato being squeezed in a vise <laughs> because California tomatoes have to be able to take 10 tons of weight at the bottom of a 10-ton trailer. So even though this tomato may land at the top, it has to be capable of being taking 10 tons of weight. So they have these vises at the University of California at Davis. Well, nobody at public television noticed that. <laughs> it, was, it was just a great experience, and it was my first experience of doing a totally idiosyncratic film and one that I hope to have again someday. Um, I can't tell you anything else about screenwriting, but I'd be happy to answer any questions. Yes, sir. My what? No, I was never, no. No, the last thing, the last time I worked in print was for the New London, Connecticut summer, fall, winter, spring, which is a newspaper for whom I was the police reporter. And it's a sub, it's a um, it's the headquarters of the Atlantic submarine fleet. So a nice Catholic girl, loose among police reports about what sailors do. <laughs> that was my first job in the business. <laughs> it was it was great experience because the police chief was a guy named Red Foley, and he didn't believe that my Catholic eyes should be sullied by reports of what sailors do, so that I learned to read upside down. <laughs> and it was, it, was just, it was just great. There were two twin sisters who provided their services on the landing of the school fire escape. And their technique was to get drunk, their mark. And when he thought he was seeing double, one of them would take him to the landing of the fire escape and provide her services, and the other would 
steal up the stairs and steal his CPA. <laughs> Usually his pants too, because that way they could make a slower getaway. And that was, I mean, that writing that story against the will of Red Foley was a great launch into the world of newspaper. <laughs> but no faucet publication. Yes, ma'am. It isn't funny. <laughs> I'm working on a screenplay based on Anna Murdoch's novel. Anna Murdoch is an Australian writer, wife of Rupert Murdoch. The novel is called In Her Own Image, and it's for the same people who pr produced A Town Like Alice. It'll be a feature film, but it's for the people who produced A Town Like Alice. Yes, well, I actually I saw it at a critic's screening with Richard Condon sitting beside me. It's a terrifying moment because you have these images in your mind when you're writing. And these people do come to occupy your mind and your typewriter and your fingers and your time. So that when you, and I had been on the set while it was filming and I'd seen the dailies, but from the time the shooting was finished until the time it was released, I hadn't seen it at all. And here's the man who wrote the book who invented these people. So I didn't actually, I wasn't able to concentrate until the lights went up and Condon turned to me and he gave me a big kiss and he said, thank God, it's still funny. It was, <laughs> it was the best review of all the reviews that put these on. And I, w I, w I would like to see it actually, but, and I will someday. I can still recite it in my sleep. I don't feel the need actually. <laughs> yes. I always identified with the part of May Rose. <laughs> so I was real pleased when Angelica walked away with the movie. <laughs> and there were certain lines, there were lines in it that, I come from a big family, you have to talk fast and short, because otherwise you never get a word in. Well, we'd all kill for a good one-liner. So it was, that was inspirational. And there were certain lines in the movie that John Huston didn't get. There's a line where uh, Irene proposes to participate in the kidnapping of Phil Argie, and she comes out, she tells Pop her plan for how to do it, and he says, that's great. And Charlie takes Pop aside and says, I didn't get married so my wife could keep working. Every woman in this room understands that line. <laughs> John Houston, who has been married five times, doesn't. <laughs> so we argued about it a lot. And, and John is a master. And I adore and respect him and learned a lot from him. Hope we keep learning from him. And we w argued back and forth about that line. He'd say, take it out, and I'd sneak it back in. And we'd argue again. And out it would go and back in it would go. At the typists, I put it back in without his knowing and hoped he'd forget between the time that it was printed and the time of rehearsals, which thank God he did. And the day before we were having the first read-throughs, he said, that line is there. <laughs> <laughs> he has this wonderful voice that you all know. 
And I said, please, 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 please leave it through the read-through. If it gets a laugh at the read-through, then we can argue again. So it got a laugh at the read-through, <laughs> and it stayed in. But there were, there were a number of lines like that that I thought were funny that aren't in there. On the other hand, only one line was changed from the way the screenplay was written to what you see on the screen. There were scenes that were dropped, but there was, there was only one line that was changed. So I don't have any of the horror stories to tell that lots of writers do about... Yes, ma'am. I spent two periods of work on it, one about two months and one about a month or six weeks. Well, I was right there with the director, so that while I was working, he was there, and the routine was while we were in Mexico. There wasn't anything else to do, mind you. But the generator goes off at 9 o'clock, so that's bedtime. And it doesn't go on again until 8 o'clock, so it was a 13-hour workday. And the routine was that I would work alone in the morning, meet Houston in the common for lunch, give him whatever I'd done that morning, and he'd go off to his studio with it. And I'd work again alone in the afternoon. And somewhere around 6 or 6.30, sometimes 7 o'clock, I would hear this voice bellowing up the jungle hill, Honey! Honey! <laughs> <laughs> and I'd go running down. And I knew that if he had 17 questions, I'd better have 18 answers. So that I would spend some of my time not writing, but going through the next things and um, preparing. And it's a quite faithful adaptation. Condon wrote a very good novel. It's very funny, and it is based, it's certainly true in spirit, and it's quite true in plot, event, character, etc. cetera. Yeah. Did you find that process of writing the screenplay um, uh, pleasurable, agonizing? Is it something you want to continue doing? Most days when I'm writing, I my first and last thought of the day is I should have stood with the phone company. <laughs> I could be retired by now, almost. Um, sure, it's pleasurable when you get a good sentence on the page, but it's not pleasurable when you don't. And I resist. I would actually rather iron than write. And I haven't ironed since about 1953. <laughs> But that's kind of the standard. I mean, I think I'd like to be a writer when I grow up, but <laughs> I'm not going to test that too hard. Little enough. Did everybody hear the question? How much work do I turn out in 8 to 12 hours? Um, oh, 8 in the morning till noon. Virtually nothing, because I have to have the day pursuing me down the railroad tracks like a lost thing before I will actually sit down and do anything sensible. Richard Condon taught me a very useful trick, which is to warm up by writing letters. I'm actually quite a good um, pen pal, because those are like doing running warm-ups or something. But I only write, you know, when the dead hand of necessity is on me. I mean, the, the, the unpaid bill, the uh, 
threat of a lawsuit. Those it takes those things to get me going. Oh, that he was the dead hand, believe me. <laughs> I mean, the dead hand of necessity. I mean, this man that I adore, if I disappointed him, can you imagine? I mean, when he said, do you want to try your hand at rewriting this, honey? Um, my first thought was, no, I'll humiliate myself. You'll hate me. I mean, no, I didn't want to make a fool of myself in front of this hero. Um, and... John is a wonderful teacher. If I got something right, he'd say, very good, honey. And if I got something wrong, the page would simply be shuffled back into the mix of pages that had to be dealt with. <laughs> and we had a couple of roaring fights, um, one of which ended up with John shouting at me, fuck you. <laughs> and I yelled back at him, you should be so lucky. <laughs> And he put his hands on his non-hips and said, shall we continue? <laughs> I'm not sure who won that round, but <laughs> it was a great fight. <laughs> okay, anyone else? Yes, ma'am. Oh, every day, every way. I mean, do you ever believe in what you're doing? No, I mean, I think the world is going to find me out any second. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it is the dead hand of necessity. I can't do anything else. I didn't, I, you know, I should have stood with the phone company. It, it used to, when I was in television, I used to ponder what use the world had for someone whose principal skill was that she could take 30 seconds out of anything. I mean, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, No, I never think anything I'm doing is... I'm mortified most of the time. I think it was Bernard Shaw who said that you remember the first one and the current one and all the others get sort of blended together. Uh, he was talking about lovers, but I think that the same rule applies to any film. I mean, I remember my first documentary better than I remember some others that were probably better pieces of work because it was everything was new and everything was a challenge and I didn't know the answers and I didn't know the tricks. And this book is a melodrama but it has some really interesting qualities. It's the story of a young woman who's been away from Australia for 12 years who goes back to straighten out a lie. And she does, but not in the way that she expects or intends. And the lie has to do with her son's parentage. The son is the son of her sister's husband, not the son of the man she's married to. And this has been bugging her for 12 years, as I guess it might. So she wants to straighten out that lie. And I think one of the reasons they hired me was to try to give the thing a little comic relief. Well, that sort of turns out to be plugging raisins in a cake. You can't do it. Shakespeare could. I can't. So it's 
a melodrama still. And I don't know yet <laughs> how good or bad it is. I just, I don't know. It's, I think it will be, the screenplay is faithful in spirit to the novel. It is not faithful, it is nowhere near as faithful in plot or event or character as Pritzi's Honor was. Anyone else? Then we're all, oh, sorry. Yes. You know, in some ways it's easier because if you do a documentary and somebody has a coughing fit in the middle of the most important point of what they have to say, you're stuck because you can't, you can't change that. In doing this, you don't like the way Fred says it, put it in Harry's mouth. I mean, you just, you have a lot more flexibility. Of course, you have a lot more demands because you don't start from something real necessarily. And I certainly don't know anything about the Mafia. Um, but I do know a little bit about family life and family loyalty and all that sort of stuff. So you have things to draw on that are surprising and you sometimes have it easier to get stuff across by being able to mix things up in a way that you can't in documentaries. Documentaries are a lot tougher to do than they look. And I really love that world and I love doing the things about the nutcases. That was right up my street. <laughs> but I would not like to give up that world entirely, ever. Well, I mean, look at who were involved. I mean, it wasn't just John Huston. John Huston is a master, and he's made a boatload of wonderful movies. He's also made a few feathered creatures. Um, John Foreman produced Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, uh, Jack Nicholson, Kathleen Turner. I mean, you're not dealing with the D team there. It's, uh, you, you had every assurance that there would be some, something going on that was creative. And of course, John Huston had an enormous lot to do with it. The first day of rehearsals, he sat everybody down and said, this picture must have a sound. And he presented a woman named Julie Bovasso, who played the mother uh, in The Verdict, kind of heavyset woman, wonderfully dramatic eyes. And she came from Brooklyn, and John had found her and hired her as a dialogue coach so that Angelica Houston, for the next six weeks, spoke Brooklyn always. <laughs> And, it, you know, those were the differences that a master director like Houston can make. Houston also goes into a picture with a script blocked, a lesson he learned by making a flop or two. And uh, he's made so many, he's got to know a few of the tricks. I mean, even if he weren't a master, which he is, he would have picked up a few by now. So he made an enormous difference, of course. But no movie, no documentary, know anything is all the work of one person. I just don't buy that at all. Yes? Yes. Yes. They changed one line from what was written to what got on film. That's all. And I was pissed about that. <laughs> yes. 
I, I had not written a screenplay before. It was my first. Um, Condon has, who is, the, he's just the most generous spirited man in the world. He's just a marvelous man. Besides being a very talented writer, he's a marvelous human being. He has said in print that I wrote the screenplay, that I did major surgery, and that it, um, that it essentially was, the screenplay was my work. And he does do only a first draft. That is his personal policy. And at the time, he was facing heart surgery when he was working on the first draft of Pritzies, so that his concentration probably wasn't as good as it might have been. And he loved the picture. I guess that's fair testimony to something. I'm not sure what, but I was real glad when he liked it. <laughs> no. Um, if you parse any task into small enough bits, each little bit becomes comprehensible. Sometimes the parts don't add up. But I didn't ever go at it as a whole. That was much too intimidating a task. I went at it bit by bit. I think probably there's a, one of the greatest differences is in the balance of the characters. I mean, partly it was a matter of selection. There are a lot more characters in the novel Pritzi's Honor than there are in the picture but I borrowed things from characters who had to get eliminated mm -hmm. and put them into the mouth, mouths of people who were still there. And the character of May Rose um, comes up several notches from the way it is in the novel. The balance, it does, the, the novel is, has much more tapestry quality than the screenplay. Screenplays have to be simpler and it is essentially a love triangle. And once you strip things down to hopefully not over simple terms, it becomes easier to take on the task. And I'm a great believer in that. I don't go at things whole. Mostly I try not to go at them at all. <laughs> Anyone else? Yes. Oh, I'll never tell. <laughs> Couldn't tell that. Anybody else? Okay, we're all excused. Thank you. Oh, sorry. No, we share the credit. The guild rules are very strict about who gets what credit to protect against the hairdresser's cousin. Um, and we never went to an arbitration at all. It was always agreed that we would share the credit, which was entirely appropriate. Okay, we're all excused. Thank you. Thank you.